0: I just want to know what version of the Sermon on the Mount he was looking at. Uh, But that is great. You know what? You come to the house of God, and a lot of times, this is exactly what we need. And just to kick back, relax in his presence, and know that he cares for us. Now, I don't know what you took out of that song. but I feel like I'm out on a limb right now. <laughs> and God is interested in us, isn't he? We could, we could probably preach a couple sermons from there, but I'm going to leave it with this. My friend, when you need help, he is there. And uh, that's something that we can bank on, isn't it? And uh, we have an awesome God. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. Uh, just stand where you are. And um, last week we weren't able to pray for uh, Tom and Emily. They weren't here in our in our presence. Uh, but this morning they are acting on behalf of us, as they are probably en route if they haven't landed already in the Dominican. And uh, they'll be spending this week in a variety of different areas of service. And uh, we want to support them. And uh, I had the privilege of praying with them yesterday or Friday, I think it was, um, before they left. And uh, I just wanted them to know that they are loved and appreciated by People's Church, right? And this week we're going to uphold them in prayer. And as we're doing that right now, we need to be mindful. Paul is en route home. So sometime in the wee hours of the morning, uh, he'll land in, I think it's Moncton, possibly. And uh, hopefully that's where it will be. And uh, then make his way back here and we'll get some reports uh, from these different people that have been out. Uh, but it's just good for us. And so in our mind size, we're going to have to remember their faces. And uh, that is the people that we love, that we have sent that they are working on behalf of the kingdom of God, and we want to support them. So let's pray together. God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity that is ours. Just to kick back and relax a little bit and laugh, that's really good. We need that. But to be mindful that you're involved in every situation of our life. And for Tom and Emily, it's a big challenge. A lot of different things that are going on, though they've been there before, done it, whatever, there's always going to be those things. And I pray that you will be strong on their behalf. And as we prayed for Paul for health, we pray for them. We also pray that the ministry that you have given them, opportunities to talk to people en route and on the ground when they get there, we pray that you'll use them in a mighty way. God, we pray that you'll prepare the people's hearts That they would be open and receptive to the various truths that will be presented and the various things that will be shared with them. That whole team, as they continue this month, um, some 30 of them traveling back and forth, we pray for safety for them. For Paul and the team coming back tonight, uh, we pray for them as they travel that you'll give them safety. We thank you today. We praise your holy name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Why don't you turn around and greet someone this morning. Tell them you're glad to have them here. All right. That's great. Don't get too caught up in it here. You'll have a few minutes uh after the service to figure out those recipes and all that stuff. It's good. Good to see you all this week. And uh, just that God has been working in hearts and lives, and that is so cool. And as we come every week back together again, this is the beginning of the week. Uh, That was past. We've got something ahead of us. What a great way to begin. It's kind of like a double-stuffed Oreo. And uh, this is the double-stuffing where we get the opportunity to be together. And already we've been in the Word of God in Sunday school, and, uh, and then we continue in the Word of God today, but just their fellowship, that it would be sweet with one another. We're talking through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, last week we kind of did an overview, thought we were going to jump into it, but it got carried away, and I want to talk a little bit about background before we jump in, and uh, just some things that... I found to me, and I'm doing it for me, it was helpful for me to be reminded as I look at this passage, I've said, I've read it, I've looked at it so many different times as I know you have. But we want to make sure that we're looking at this from the vantage point of God and the intent. Last Sunday, we spent the time, and I want to thank you for your patience with me. I'm not sure if that's something that you normally do. That was, a, that was a long reading, 111 verses that was a message, that was the way it was given, and it just allows us. And so I was helping you with your homework. I hope this week that you had the opportunity to go again and read it in one setting. If you haven't, do it. It's good. It helps us. I want you to do it again, all right? Then we looked at those final two questions for homework. And the first one was, as I read it, what is it that... The crowds found astonishing. At the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, when he sat down, it was like, boom! They were totally astonished. They were amazed with the miracles, but they were astonished with his words. What was it that was driving that? And then, as you read it, I trust that you will stop and think, well, what's so astonishing about it for me? It's more than just the red letters in your Bible. They are important. All the words are important. But this was a significant passage, a significant message that Jesus Christ elected to proclaim at that moment. He did nothing by chance. It was always scripted. This, before the foundation of the world, was the very time for that message to be given. Wow. Why? This is some of the things, folks, that as the people of God, we've got to begin to start doing a little better in. And it's the word meditating. We have some sheep farmers here. We have some... Anybody got any cattle? Animals that chew the cud? You have some teenagers that I notice chew the cud too. It's a lo- almost a lost art today. We're in such a panic. And if you come to my house, I'm sorry, I'm the worst one. I don't enjoy food. I devour it. You know, there's some people, they can, make, they can make that little itty-bitty thing last for like an hour. How do you do that? I mean, it's like, it's there, I devour it. And then I think afterwards, what was it I just ate? Is it any reason why? Right? Right? It's the same thing when it comes to the people of God and the Word of God. Now, we're not going to drag this out so that we're going to look at one word and spend all year on it, but I think this particular passage of Scripture really, really, really is begging the people of God to stop and read it and think about it. That's meditating. I want you to try it this week. In light of the background that I want to share with you this morning, just a few points I want to kind of consider as we look at this. And this whole thing, it started way before Matthew, right? This all started way back. The kingdom of God is at hand was not a new point of reference. Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom. You'll find it 32 different times. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're synonymous. But he's always talking about a kingdom. But that kingdom was not a new issue. He was talking to Jewish people who throughout the Old Testament had been promised. And in Daniel, it was very clear something was going to take place. Kingdom. And then all of a sudden, we see that once that prophecy was established, we get to Malachi, see it one more time, and then all of a sudden, the lights go off. 400 years. That's a long time. Nothing. Nothing. During that 400 years, things were going on. People were still trying to figure out what it meant. And this is where entrenchment begins to take place as people were thinking and analyzing, trying to figure out what all this was happening. There was no new rele- revelation at this point, but the people were still enamored with what does this mean? Is that a memorial service yesterday? And it was really clear. We are born, we live, and we die. And it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And you better figure it out. Right? We all know that. The kingdom of God is at hand. We look around the newspaper. We can read and see what's going on. And I don't know. It just seems to be January. We're into business meetings, times, and looking at finances. And don't you notice that every January, it's the same newscast with different players? Doom and gloom about the economy. What was it? Target this week and the oil sands. And, you know, you just go down and down. And it's like, oh, man, we're going to die. All these things help us to remember God is coming back. And then the Gospels. Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. He begins to come, and we come to this first Gospel with the title Matthew. And as we think a little bit about this gospel, we realize that it was written, as I said earlier, to a completely Jewish audience. These people understood, they heard, they knew, they had an idea of God. And he's writing this to them. With the sole purpose, Matthew of identifying that Jesus of Nazareth truly is this great king of this kingdom that would come. The promised Messiah. Matthew's Gospel. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew. And we'll take a little cruise through. And just look at these opening chapters so that we've got a little bit of background as to where we're coming into. It's kind of interesting. As we look at chapter 1, we begin to see the genealogies of Christ, the announcement to Mary of this promised child, and that he would save his people from their sins. Chapter 1 talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. We get to chapter 2, and we see the actual following that particular event of Jesus Christ's birth, how that he The wise men come. We see the fleeing to Egypt, the death of the children. He returns back to Nazareth. We get to chapter 3. John the Baptist arrives to prepare the way, and Jesus is baptized. 30 years. Cool. 30 years has transpired. We're into this a little further. And then we come to chapter 4, where Jesus begins his public ministry. And during that time frame, his ministry begins not in Jerusalem, the center of religion, but in the northern section of Israel called Galilee. If you have a Bible with maps in the back, it's kind of cool to see how... Far afield. I could preach a sermon on rural living, but I won't. It's amazing. That's how God intended this to go down. It was all part of the promise. It was all part of the prophecy. And now we get to this place, and it is one year into Jesus Christ's public ministry that we see John the Baptist and Jesus Christ presenting the same message. And that message is wrapped around this phrase, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Interesting. That was not a new message. That message had been presented from the time that man fell to today. And beyond. That word repent has a lot to do with a turnaround. Repenting is a change of direction, it's an acknowledgement that where I am is not the right place to be. It is a very humbling place, is it not? It is not just feeling sorry that I got caught. Ever been there? You know people who have, right? Because with this message, it's interesting that John the Baptist goes even a little bit further, and we're going to see a couple of other scoundrels called these Pharisees and Sadducees. In chapter 3 and verse 8, they come, and he says to them, therefore, it's a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And in verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Whoa. I kind of had to stop and take a little head tilt. A little evaluation time this week. Just my life reflect that kind of repentance? Not just on Sunday morning when I'm in front of you, but in every area of my life. It doesn't say fruit. Notice it says fruits. Plural. It's extended to every area of our life. And as we begin to think about this particular statement, we move to another thought, and it's this area of repentance... For the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is where I had to spend some time. And I found a great book, Mr. John MacArthur. You probably have heard of him. And he talks a lot about different things. And this particular thing caught my attention one more time. How do I explain this kingdom of God? This is important because all throughout this gospel, he keeps talking about the kingdom is like. If you were in Sunday school class, you would have heard it there. What kingdom? And I got to say that my theological training has kept me away from pursuing this word. Because I'm in the church, aren't I? Let's see if I can help you. You write it down and you talk to me. I don't want to be theologically incorrect, but I want to try to help us understand why in the world was this message so astonishing to these people? Because I've read it, as you have, and I'm like... "Ah, Sounds reasonable to me. If we think of a kingdom... Let's let that outside box represent it. There are two parts to this kingdom. There was an outer kingdom that you will see from the Old Testament through. Of those people, it includes everybody that claims to be a God follower. There's another illustration for those who do not want God. They are fools, and they live in the world. We're not talking about them. This is a book to Jews. This is talking to God followers. Those that profess, and those that possess. Make up the outer. We're all... But there's an interesting thing that you begin to see. There seemed to be an inner kingdom that Jesus kept talking about. There was a group of people that he would say, you know, hey, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these mighty things in your name? And he said to them, yeah, but at the end I'll have to say to you, depart from me for I never knew you. So we see that there's a group of haves and have-nots within this sermon. They were all understanding of God. They were in that kingdom, outer kingdom. But there was a group, a remnant that we see in the Old Testament that truly believed God. I think of the difference between Saul and David. The heritage that was there, but Saul did not worship God. David did. We see these elements all throughout Scripture. Okay? Tracking with me? Now watch. This is where we get into some of the other areas of theology of dispensational truth. And mm, Just hang on, okay? If we think about that and we look at the Word of God, we begin to see this box inside the box, represents the Old Testament. All the prophetic teaching that has gone on from time in the Old Testament of a people that knew of God. Some of them were in the outer, some of them were in the inner. We move to this particular passage. It's true with the Gospels. Where we are right now, this seems to be true within. We see coming up as we continue to read, there's this interim period when God turns his back on the Jew and he goes to us, the Gentile, and we're grafted in. That's the church age, right? That we talk about and we love so much. But even here, we see there are those that call themselves and those that actually possess. A little bit later on, we'll even see it in the millennial reign. Because at the end of the millennial reign, what takes place? Satan is released for a while, and there will be a group of people that were in the millennium for a thousand years, and they follow Satan. Until finally, we get to the real kingdom that is promised, Which is for all eternity, and the only ones there will be truly God followers. Matthew undoubtedly emphasizes the king and his kingdom. Yet he also shows how the Jews rejected Jesus as their king, and one day he will return to judge and rule. All the earth will one day see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. His coming will be at an hour that you think not, and he will be coming in glory and in judgment. Matthew 24. Wow. Got it? Hang on. Now. This gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what Jesus is jettisoning into when he begins to preach. And what does he come into during this time frame? Let's turn this section of pre- the present, the gospel, and turn it on its edge. And it would look something like this. Hopefully, it will flip. That little section of the gospel, talking about the kingdom, was very divided. These were the people that were in that outer circle... They were the ones that went to the temple. They were the ones that paid the taxes. They were the ones that did the sacrificing. They were the ones that did the devotional like they do in Deuteronomy. They had followed it all the way through. And they had developed over that 400 silent year two major sects called Pharisee and Sadducee. And they were totally opposed to one another. Now, add the words. Well, wait a minute, let's get here. Let's talk a little bit about them first. We know Pharisees, okay? They're the ultra conservative. They formed self-righteous, holy community within the community. They were legalistic, isolationalists. They had no regard or respect for anyone outside their sect. They believed strongly in sovereignty, the divine destiny that they only enjoyed. <laughs> you know, elitism. I'm going and you're not. Na, 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 boo, boo. They were super spiritual. They based it on meticulously keeping of certain rituals, rites, and taboos. Their loyalty was to themselves, their tradition, and their own influence of prestige. They were ritualistic, separationalist. For the most part, they were commoners, so their crowd was larger than the Sadducees. And they believed that their reward... For doing all these things would be rewarded one day in heaven. That's a snapshot of one element of teaching that was prevalent when Jesus came. The counterbalance was the Sadducees. They were the ultra-liberals. They claimed to accept the law of Moses as supreme and only religious authority. They scorned the legalistic traditions of the Pharisees. They were closely associated with the priestly caste. Remember, these were the ones that Jesus cast out of the temple. Okay? So, they weren't just commoners. They were aristocrats. They had lots of money. They cared very little for religion, especially doctrine. They denied the existence of angels, resurrection, and anything supernatural. They lived only for the present. They could, they believed in um, unlimited freedom of their will. They were the masters of their own destiny. They were rationalistic. They were compromising collaborators. And they believed basically, hey, eat, eat, drink and be married because we're going to die so we better get our reward here. Just a snapshot. You have heard it said. Now you're beginning to understand. Because when Jesus walked in to a crowd of people, there were two ways of thought. And he would start off by saying to them, you have heard it said. So if they were sitting as a Pharisee, they would think it through from that vantage point of how does that relate to all the 612 rules that we have to keep. If they were sitting on the side of the Sadducee, and he would read or present that sermon they would be thinking wow but I thought we could do anything we wanted to and what really exploded in their faces is that they were being told their doctrine, their practice, their religion, whatever they want to call it, not everyone would get into the kingdom of heaven. Does that kind of change the way now you see the Sermon on the Mount? Does that help you to understand why at the very end these guys were so upset with him? That they were willing to actually do all kinds of illegal things, even for a Jew, in order to get rid of him. Because they were being presented with the very truth that what they held as real was wrong. These two groups had one thing in common. Neither of them had any real interest in the genuine inner spiritual life. It was all external. It was a show. And Jesus walked into the midst and with that penetrating dagger pierced their hearts. In the middle of this was a crowd of people who was being led like sheep. It depended on who was in charge at that particular time. That's who they were following. And they were looking for some kind of help in life. That's why the crowds responded to Jesus originally, initially. Because truly, he sounded totally different. He spoke as one who had authority. He knew what he was talking about. Well, has anything really changed today? This is the point I want to make as we conclude this morning. Let's go back to our little box. Let's pop up the church. The church as a whole, the universal church of Jesus Christ. There is an outer and there's an inner. The church of Jesus Christ is divided today, is it not? Almost on the same lines. It doesn't make any difference if you're Baptist, independent, charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever. We call ourselves evangelical and you will find we have got ourselves stuck in some traditional thought plan that has been given to us and now we're struggling for survival. Why aren't our churches full? Why aren't the kids coming to Sunday school? Why aren't we having to build a school for all the boys and girls? Mm. This one hurt. (laughs) Did I tell you I loved you today? Will you tell me you love me? Because this is what really hurts me the most. Is to think that possibly I could actually be one of these guys. And look back and actually point out to you exactly when I was one of them. Praise God, you have heard it said, but Jesus says unto us. What is it that really gets at the heart of church today? It's when we come to grips and realize not everyone is going to make it. Repent, my friend. Takes on a different word, doesn't it? It means a change, a turnaround of both my mind and my will, and it is married up with fruits of repentance. This is not a gospel of works. This is a gospel based on Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. And because he has done that for me, then my goodness, I've acknowledged that I am wrong. I'm in the wrong house, in the wrong place, and I'm going to repent and be converted and walk in newness of life. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard it said. But with fresh eyes, let's look at it again. And take a peek at what it is that God says our lifestyle should be. How we ought to worship Him for who He is. And how we should be able to. To treat others. Cool? I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount one more time. All the way through. I want you to stop and see and consider why it was those guys were so astonished. And I want you to answer the question, based on what we've said this morning with the background then, what do I find? This passage, so astounding. Cool? Do it? All God's people said? Now you're committed. Now, this evening, we know that this is all about truth. We're going to look from the standpoint of checking out in our own lives. Maybe there's issues that we've kind of accepted that we're somebody else's and we need to get back to the book because God says it and what? That settles it. Let's be people of the book. Bible-driven, not somebody else's systematic theology. Let's be Bible-driven believers. Tonight, we're going to continue thinking a little bit about this whole thing of spiritual fatigue. Because I think this has a lot to do with that. Why we get ourselves so tired out for God? Because it's interesting, the Sermon on the Mount starts with what words? Blessed are. And so does Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. That's an interesting place for us to consider being. I want to encourage you to come on out with us. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the morning. We thank you for the truths of your word and this morning as we have just kind of attempted to clarify some key things. I pray that you will use that in our hearts and in our lives, but as we open your word and study it, may, it, may we be reminded of this, the, the importance of this and what's really going on and how this isn't written to the world. It's written to those that have been taught. And your words brought life. Oh God, may that be the way it is with us. Bless us today. Give us our rest. And as we start this week, may we do it. For the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you are dismissed.